Without some man telling you what to do all the time. Why some man always trying to tell me what to do? It's not some man. <laughs> Is it because I don't have any pockets in my pants? <laughs> you can't take me seriously? Well, That's it, isn't it? If you had brought more shit with you, you'd be more useful. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm Liz. I'm Chad. And we are here in episode 69. 69. Yeah. It's so, funny because it's a sex position. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, listen. This will be a sensible podcast, all right? Completely sensible. Yep. Free of your base perversions, no sexual jokes. All right? Gotcha. So what comes after 69? 70. Mouthwash. (laughs) (laughs) And a shower. Welcome to the Duke... (laughs) So we will be covering Interlude 7 through Chapter 55. That is correct. On our next book club, we'll be covering Chapters 56 through 58. A real palate cleanser. (laughs) Did you say 56 through 58? 56 through 58. Okay, all right. A couple of long chapters. All right, so would you like to tell them our spoiler policy? Yes, here is our spoiler policy. Chad has not read these books. Nope. I have read them. However, we like to keep Chad unspoiled going through the series, so we will not be talking about anything that happens after chapter 55. In this section. Of the Way of Kings. Have we of actually said what Kings. book? This we is... have not said the title of the book. We were all wrapped up in your 69 jokes. We. This has been all a fluster. And see, this is the way 69 goes in real life. It it's, sounds like a good idea. And the execution is always subpar. It's a complete clusterfuck. It's distracted. There are things going on. I'm... <laughs> Not familiar with, (laughs) it's just an awkward orientation. I don't know what's going on. And that is how you did it, right? Yeah. (laughs) But you checked it off the box. (laughs) That is how this episode is starting. We're checking the box. We're checking the box. No, we're not starting over. (laughs) Normally, we would start over. But not this time, damn it. Not episode 69. No, it's going to be what it's going to be. So you pull for the those hair of out you... of your teeth and you move on. Stop. Oh, my God. Whew. 
Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. We are covering The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. So, real talk. Okay, talking about the book now. How far are we in? We're going to actually talk about the book. What did you think of this section? I enjoyed it. It, it. There was a lot of really exciting stuff in the interludes. And surprisingly, I found myself enjoying the Dalinar chapters. Right? Starts moving along. Yeah, exactly. It, it ends on a weird note. I mean, you can't always end each little, you know, sort of mini arc that we carve out four or five chapters. Can't always end it on like a huge cliff you know cliffhanger or awesome moment so it just sort of ends in a weird spot but overall i thought it was a good section well i didn't hear you like muttering bullshit or showing any other kinds of uh outrage so i figured you were probably cool with it yeah i was down you were down with it all right well we had a couple of interludes and some of them were quite interesting So are we ready to get into that? Yeah, absolutely. You want to talk about interlude number seven? Interlude number seven is called Baxel. We follow Baxel and his colleague Av. They have a pretty strange job. They follow their mistress around to various mansions and palaces, helping her destroy art. They break into the home of Ashno of Sages, one of the richest and holiest men in Emul. Baxel watches as his mistress destroys a painting of Epan, Lady of Dreams, a fine bust, a vase, and a full statue. Baxel tells Av that he is thinking of seeking the old magic to ask for, I don't know, courage or something like that. Something to make him useful. Exactly. Av thinks this is a bad idea as his brother sought the old magic once and came back with two numb hands. I want to visit the stranger. Two numb hands. <laughs> and See, two numb hands. We don't have to make the sex jokes. Brandon Sanderson does it for us. I was like getting a little risque there, Brandon yeah, Sanderson. That's, a, that's about as close to the line as Brandon Brandor is going to get. It really is. <laughs> it really is. Brandor stays safely on the, the PG side of PG-13. <laughs> He is hands above the waist. Yes. And, know- and for me, I, I don't know. I find it refreshing. Personally. It takes all kinds. I don't need descriptions every time of the main character's happy trail. I'm, <laughs> I think, feel like I had enough of that with the gentleman bastards. You don't need to hear about his fat pink mast. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So what the hell is going on with these people? These okay. Are like, these are like the eco-terrorist of Roshar. So I, this is definitely one of those interludes that's meant to raise mi- a mystery or more questions than it's answering. So we have Baxel, Av, and the Mistress. Baxel and Av are both um, Imuli, mm-hmm. and they are obviously some sort of just thugs for hire, basically. Baxel has a raging crush on the Mistress, but he's just kind of a... Ho-hum. Ho-hum, not too brave kind of guy. Av seems like he's got it a little more together. All we know about him really is that his father, mother, and brothers all went to seek the old magic. And that's... That's really what we get out of this. A big point out of this chapter. We've heard it mentioned. We've heard the Night Watcher mentioned in very brief passing. But now we get it spelled out for us a little bit more. What exactly that means. 
Yeah, and this sort of lays the groundwork. I mean, we've heard a couple of references, as you said, but we get much more of it in this section overall. So, you know, from it, the name simply being dropped to now getting a little bit of an explanation of what it is to later in this section, finding out some very personal information about how one of our main characters got involved with it is sort of, you know, the 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 path that we go on with this particular gem. The other thing I thought was interesting is that this isn't the first mention of Emul or the Emuli people, but it, again, in this section, we hear it, it comes up multiple times. This is the first of three chapters where this location is, is mentioned where the, where the idea is raised. And Brandon Sanderson is so good at that, at building clues upon clues you know, he'll mention something once, comes out a little bit more later, and then much later it'll come out to be very important. But it's he's just always building on the clues that he left in previous chapters. Which is what gives me a little bit more patience when he drops something that's super random and mysterious. And I'm like, okay, well, there's no way I'm supposed to know what that means at this stage. It gives me patience when we have things like this you can clearly see him building, and it appears as though these things pay off. I have faith that it's paying off. I'm seeing little bits of it being paid off, so it gives me a little bit more of an ability to just sort of go with it. It's interesting how well Brandon Sanderson keeps all of his stuff in line, because Cosmere fans, they are incredibly detail-oriented, and I, I feel like... They would not tolerate inconsistencies no. well, you know, and it's None been of that dilly dallying. It's so cool to watch how just how passionate the fandom is, though. You know, there are definitely I've seen interviews where Brandon Sanderson is um, dropped something that was so subtle. He thought there's no way you're going to be able to guess. And then people are able to guess. And he's like, oh, I guess you guessed that. <laughs> it's it's cool to see how if you go um you know, if you've read the other books and want to get more into it, you can um, check out the the Coppermind wiki and the 17th Shard website are both, they have really good discussion boards where they get deeper into the Cosmere stuff. And we're going to get, there's a couple things we might talk about that are greater Cosmere related on this episode, but you know, for the most part, we don't get into that so as not to spoil plot points of other novels. But, so we've got the mistress here as a character we haven't talked about yet. And this is a character that doesn't quite seem to fit. We've had multiple instances of people who show up who they say they appeared a lethe. They had a lethe skin and a lethe hair and they were tall, but their eyes were different or this was different. We have m multiple mentions of these like half a lethe sort of people showing up in these random instances. So... The other place where it occurs that in particular stands out is in the chapter, or I'm sorry, in the interlude one with Ishik, the three men who came to visit him, two who looked like they were Makabaki, and then this one random guy he called the Thinker, whose description was not word for word similar, but eerily similar to the description of the mistress. So did you have any thoughts just reading this interlude? No, nope, Nothing. Not a damn No clue. guesses. It's just, it's all mysteries. Nope. Just pointing out that there are 
pointing out that it's the first time it occurred to me or that I noticed it, and I don't feel like it's the first time it's happened, but where we have these Alethi sort of appearing people. I also feel like, I feel like, although I, I won't stand by this, I feel like it comes up in Dalinar's visions a couple times as well, in particular in uh, chapter 52, I think it is. I've, or I'm sorry, not 52. Um, yeah, 52. I feel like it comes up there as well, one of the radiance that he grabs. So, but it's the first time I'm noticing it. So I haven't really been able to figure out what is the connective tissue between them, but it keeps happening multiple times in interludes outside of Alethkar. And they're described as looking like a Lethe, but having different shaped eyes and speaking with different accents. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I have no idea. Just put a pin in it. Put a pin in it. Pin in the yarn wrap it. Exactly. Wrap another piece of yarn around it and string it on and keep going. I thought it was neat with this little section of interludes how we have one that really raises a lot of questions and is very mysterious, followed by one that kind of gives us some answers and gives us a little more detail, especially about Spren. Correct. I, I, I'm not quite ready to move on to that. Oh, yet. well, Lay all your thoughts on me. All right. So there was there was one other thing I noted about the mistress is she says, perhaps I should get a shard blade. And she says it in such a way that makes it sound as though, you know, maybe we'll get Starbucks. Right. <laughs> maybe I'll just go pick up a shard blade. Yeah. It was hard to tell if I was reading too much into that line. No, I think you were you're spot on. I, you know, what is this person doing and why are they randomly just destroying artwork if they, particularly if they have the ability to just go procure themselves a shard blade at will? Like, no, I, I don't have an answer for that. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just a little bit strange. Right. So the other thing that crossed my mind is, is this uh, Sasemilex Dar? Well, we know that they are in Emul, and we know that they are in the house of one of the richest and holiest men in Emul. And Sasemilex Dar is supposed to be the capital of Emul. So it's not explicitly stated, but that's a pretty good assumption. Seems like it would be if this is the home of Ashno of the Sages, or Correct. Ashno of Sages. Put a pin on it. Put a pin in it. All right, now, now I'm done. Interlude I-8 is called Jaranid. Jaranid is an ardent who is researching Spren. She lives with her fellow ardent slash platonic life partner, Ashir, on a tiny Reshi island. While studying flame Spren, Jaranid makes an important discovery. The flame Spren she is watching changes size and shape constantly until it is measured. Once the Spren's height is measured and recorded, it becomes locked at that size. Ashir remarks that this will change the world's understanding of Spren and even Fabrials, but the reader is left to wonder what all of that means. Yeah, and Ashir, he's up there cooking. She's in there measuring, and he's so cooking. So we have these couple of yeah. Ardents. They're an adorable little couple. Ashir is a cook. So we've had the question raised a few times, can females become Ardents? Because we haven't met any female Ardents. Now we, now we have. We get to meet a female Ardent. I imagine there are fewer female ardents because for women who are allowed to read and study if they want, there would be less of a draw into the Ardentia. 
Correct. Yeah, and for men, it's the only it's the only way to be allowed to pursue the quote feminine arts, you know, like science and reading, reading. <laughs> and candy and, ca- and candy, right? <laughs> I mean, that would be what I would do in this society. I mean, right? <laughs> and apparently, music, I think, as well. I think only women. Yeah, play music. music and art and drawing. Which I think that the music part is significant. I think the music part is significant. Mm. Don't really, again, don't mm-hmm. don't have a conclusion to base on that yet. But but um, Ashir is over there cooking, and he's cooking something up, and he's like, he turns to her and he says, do you know when fluoridation first began? 1946. How's that for your post-war dream? Pretty obvious, isn't it? And she says, what the hell are you talking about? Come here and look at this spren. <laughs> No, the, the, so the thing that got me really, my brain really turning in this whole section is he said, and the first time I read it, glossed completely by it. Right. He references Shadesmar, and he says, I wonder about uh, food in the cognitive realm. Do you think people in Shadesmar need to eat or something to that effect? I don't, I don't have I have it written down. Okay. He's, he well, he wonders if they eat in the cognitive realm, and he asks, is a food there what it sees itself as being? I'll have to read and see if anyone has ever eaten while visiting Shadesmar. Yeah. So the first time I read through this, I thought, because I always, anytime I see a new word, you know, I try to put a pin in it, right? So I thought, okay, Shadesmar, probably some city way out east, didn't think anything else about it and rolled mm-hmm. on. The second time I read through it, I caught that it said the cognitive realm. And then it said Shadesmar. And then it's then it said does you know something about does the food think it is what it is, you know? And I thought, wait a minute. So that's referencing Spren and referencing the cognitive realm. So there's something to tie all that together. I have a theory about it. Do you want to tell me what it is? I do. So I think that Shadesmar is where Shallan went when she soul cast. What are you doing? I am turning to the chapter where Shallan visits that place and soul casts chapter 45 i believe and it is called hold on there you go you know i can't see that that's too far away <laughs> it's called shadesmar oh damn <laughs> boom <laughs> All right, so I should have picked up on that earlier, but well, we <laughs> but know I've, you don't read the chapter titles as we've as we already know. They're right there in front of me. I just don't take advantage of it. <laughs> but I figured it out. So hey, I'm only like twelve chapters behind. You're way farther in figuring things out than I was when I first read this book. All right, cool. So that yeah, that's a that's a big note there. This idea of the cognitive realm. It's called Shadesmar. Pretty much all we know about it. Yeah. Other than than Shallan's visit there, but I just think isn't that cool how that 
how Brandon Sanderson did that. He, the chapter yeah. title, which you would have just kind of brushed by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all these chapters later here, it's mentioned again, and you kind of get another hint at what it is. The other thing that was interesting about this is the way, again, it's such an offhand sort of thing. You know, very much an inside baseball sort of comment for Ardents, but for people who are outside of the Ardentia, probably something that never comes up. Whether it's considered something that would be taboo for them to talk about, I don't know, or if it's simply considered esoteric or, you know, pedantic, I I don't know. But they just mention it in this very sort of offhand way, which tells me that I would presume most Ardents know about this. It is a very academic subject, so it's not something that most people are talking about. I will tell you, because it's not spoilery, that, well, it is mentioned earlier in the book in one of Yasna's and Shalon's conversations, they talk about realmic theory. Mm, So the idea of the three realms. This is the spiritual realm, the cognitive realm, the physical realm. This is something that's constant across the Cosmere. So it's a cool thing to look for connections between the books. So there is a bizarro other world. I was so excited when you said that. So, I don't know how I got my face still. So there is a bizarro other world, maybe even three bizarro other worlds that sort of echo. Because it didn't, it wasn't lost on me that it's Roshar. Shades Mar, mm-hmm. but I would figured I would hold off on going down that road yet until I got more information. I'm uncertain as to how spoilery it is to mention the illustrations on the back cover of the of the paper book. Mm. I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe maybe we. I don't know. So if you have a. a a physical copy of the book, or I'm assuming if on your Kindle, you may, I'm not sure how you can kind of page to the end. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The pictures in the Kindle or, or at least in the Nook are impossible to look at anyway. Well, there's in the, in the inside of the front cover. Now this is not like my weird symbol head picture. That's only in my edition, but on <laughs> the inside of the front cover, there's a map of Roshar. Mm-hmm. Okay, and on the inside of the back cover, there is a map of Shadesmar. So if you're curious, um, I I didn't bring it up before because, I mean, there's not a lot of details in the map because Shadesmar hadn't really been mentioned. But if you're curious, you can can look back there and check it out. It actually looks like a bizarro other world. I know. (laughs) It is. It was so hard for me to not like do an excited wiggle. It looks when you like came up with that the prediction. upside down version of Roshar. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Once again, foiled by my shitty Barnes and Noble reading device. Right. I have opinions, by the way, about the Nook. We've noticed. <laughs> Good. Anyway, yes, that was an awesome prediction. For anybody who looked in the back, the back of the book, it would have been obvious, but but you hadn't. But I had not. I, I don't have one of those. So, oh, that's interesting. So the reason why I was going down the road of saying that this is sort of just offhand knowledge for them, not 
you know, something incredibly out there is it reminds me of things that we learned about from capsule or things that hints that should allow have allowed us to guess that he was not what he said he was Mm -hmm. when she asked him about soul casting and he was like oh you just you know put it on and wiggle some buttons right any ardent who actually soul cast would have known about Shadesmar and the cognitive realm and would have known that that's not how it works. So that should have been a clue to us that he was not an ardent. Yeah, Capsule is full of shit. 100% full of shit. So it also causes me to think I ended up spending more time in this chapter thinking about Capsule than anything else. That's what Capsule does to you. Son of a bitch. Damn Catalano. (laughs) So... I'm starting to think who sent this guy. And I can't believe, again, last week I didn't ask that question, but sometimes I'm slow in the uptake. And I'm starting to think here, who sent this guy Capsule, right? I don't think it was the people who dispatched Seth. I don't think it was those guys, unless it was meant specifically to be a decoy or a red herring from them. But I I don't think so, because he was way too clumsy. Also... Wouldn't be anybody from the Ardentia. Now, you would think that they would be somebody who might have a bone to pick with Yasna, but it's not going to be one of them uh, because it paints them in a bad light. So the only thing I can tell at this point, the only thing I know, I'm stumbling over my words here, is that it's somebody who wants Yasna dead and wants to frame the Ardentia. Yeah. You know, and we have something later that in one of Dalinar's chapters that looks sort of like an echo of this. Mm -hmm. So it causes me to think it's related. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. So Capsule's a man who believes in a life after this one. And he knows he'll have to answer for what he's done. And he thinks that he can. Are you guys playing Chad's obscure reference bingo at home? (laughs) Because you should be. So and what what do they win if they get them all? Oh, there's no win. There's nothing to win. You, you 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 win the opportunity to be titillated. <laughs> well, I'm going to send you a gold star. So listen, if you catch any of the references, just go ahead and sit on your left hand. <laughs> and when the podcast is over, you can have fun with the stranger. So listen, <laughs> this is about science, all right? Okay. It's, it's all for science, okay? Absolutely. So spren, when they are defined, they cease to change in that dimension. So again, I don't really know what this means. It causes me to speculate, is there a way that you, is that a way to be able to control spren? And if it is a way to control spren, then what does it mean for Sill? Or what does it mean for that big blue water spren, mm-hmm. you know, up north? Don't, don't, Good question. Don't know. Yeah. Just, just another, another polar bear in the jungle for us to, to try and figure out what it means. Are we ready to move on? Please. 
Interlude 9 is called Death Wears White. In this interlude, poor Seth is miserably killing people again. Shard blades don't kill people. Seth kills people. In this case, it's the king, it's King Hanavanar of Yaakoved and several of his party guests. The party turns out to be a trap that was set for Seth, which enrages him so much that he defeats a room full of soldiers and two armored shard bearers with his bare hands. Seth has already killed three of Yaakoved's high princes, probably throwing the kingdom into chaos. And tonight he melodramatically finishes off his killing streak in that country. Yes, he does. He absolutely does. Very melodramatically. There was a lot of dramatic, very little actual mellow. It's true. Like, somebody needs to get Seth inside of a small Volkswagen. (laughs) The couple college kids and a blunt and tell him to mellow the hell out. Right. You know, put on some Big E or Fat Joe and chill the fuck out. (laughs) Poor Seth. At this point, you just kind of starting to... So yeah, Seth is like losing his grip on reality. Yes. He is losing it. He calls the shard blade a cursed blade. So I noted that and thought that was interesting. And it seems like, I don't know that his use of the shard blade is what is causing this to happen, but it wouldn't surprise me. You know, I feel like there's a price to pay for severing the soul of so many people over and over and over and over again. You know, I don't, I don't know, but it's not like he's the, it's not like he's the only one or even the only point of view character we've seen who's killed hundreds of people with a shard blade. Dalinar's killed hundreds of people with a shard blade in war. Whether that context makes a difference, I I don't know. Well, the main difference is is that Seth is a shin, and so, Mm -hmm. and it's mentioned a it's been mentioned before, and then it's mentioned a little bit later too. The Shin have a taboo against killing, and even against picking up a weapon. So every time Seth kills or fights or does anything, he's damning his own soul to hell. Basically, is what he thinks. And the fact that he was cast out by his people for, I guess, telling a lie—he's been—he's been called truthless. Well, what they think is a lie. What yeah. they think is a lie. So, yeah, I mean, he's just basically a big emo ball of of self-hatred at this point. Yeah, the only other thing I noted in this is that his his use of the bindings, like particularly the one that allows him to bond people to like the floor, mm-hmm. like that's just cheating, man. Like it's just cheating. That's just straight up cheating. Like he can already change gravity. He can already you know, in this one in particular, it's like he goes into another level. He fights three shard bearers and deliberately drops his shard blade. He said the shard blade would just get in the way. So, like, he's superseded and he's in a whole different level. You feel like he's overpowered? I feel like he's being set up to be 
somebody who is going to be defeated at the end of the series. That's what I feel like is happening. It's very interesting because we have these glimpses of what people could do in the past with this kind of power Mm -hmm. in the radiance. And then this long period of time where at the stage our characters are at now, they don't even really have accurate stories of what those magic users could do back then. And then we have Seth. And it's been so long since the anyone has used Stormlight in this way that no one's even connecting Seth to anything that anyone has done before. And I don't think people even really have accurate stories about what he can do. But you kind of get a sense that that's where the story is going. Obviously, we have Kaladin mm-hmm. now displaying the same kinds of powers. You can see it building to where magic is coming back to this to this world. So I don't know, it's just kind of cool how the story builds in that way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you're, it seems to me like Seth is being painted as this, I mean, yes, absolutely a return to what the Radiants were able to do, but also we have normal soldiers and then we have shard bearers and shard plate and shard swords who to a normal soldier would be almost impossible to kill you know what happens with kaladin is like a singular event practically and then we have seth who sits like a whole another level again you know Mm -hmm. exponentially more powerful just you know, this is, you know, the Emperor over top of Darth Vader over top of a Jedi type, yeah. you know, just setting this guy up to be like, it It doesn't really get any more powerful than this. And it does. What he's doing with the bind, the binding and being able to glue people in it and poof, on top of being able, it, it, it seems like cheating. Like, it seems like you couldn't possibly stand against this guy. Well, that's exactly how you're supposed to feel. Yeah. About him. So I guess my my question for you is, when you say cheating, do you mean bad storytelling? No, no, or, no, no. Okay. No, no, no. I just mean, if you had to fight this guy, you'd be like, why does he get to cheat? I don't right? get to cheat. <laughs> like, he gets to bend the rules, man. You know? <laughs> it's also fairly obvious. It's become, I shouldn't say it's obvious. It's starting to become obvious to me particularly in light of what we are seeing in Dalinar's flashbacks about the Radiance, that Seth is some sort of Radiant Reborn. I also think it's interesting from a character standpoint that Seth reaches a point where his his self-hatred is like peaked and he is finally uh, finds himself able to channel that towards his victim. So he really turns a point here where he's, He's like, ah, what was me? I'm the worst. And then he finds himself in a flash being able to blame the king. Well, why did he have all these people here to get in the way of my sword? Like, what the hell is wrong? You know, And, and he's like, this is all his fault, you know? So I think that's kind of an important turning Uh, point for his character. Yeah, and that's why I said he's beginning to lose his grip on reality. Yeah. Also... Sorry, Yakoved, but your half shards don't do shit, apparently. <laughs> They're better than nothing. I mean, 
So we ready to get in? We got a couple of chapters to go Absolutely. through. Absolutely. Let's do it. Chapter 52 is called A Highway to the Sun. Dalinar tells Adolin. Highway to the Sun? Yes. That is, if that's not a 1986 power ballad. So 1986 power ballad. I mean, come on. <laughs> Highway to the Sun. We're going to fly to the highway to the sun. I got my big hair, 14 bandanas tied around my skinny ass pants leg. I got a guitar that's got eight random sharp points coming off of it in uncomfortable angles. In this chapter, Dalinar tells Adolin and Renarin about his decision to abdicate. Adolin's all like, can't you just stop being crazy? And Dalinar's all like, shut up and tie me to this chair. <laughs> and Renarin's like, gentlemen, gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> exactly. Then we witness another vision. In this one, we see the recreants. This was a turning point for Roshar when the Radiants threw down their weapons and abandoned mankind. It's eerie and confusing, and Dalinar wakes up with more questions than answers. Renarin is especially unnerved by Dalinar's fit. We find out that Dalinar had once sought a boon from the Night Watcher and that the loss of his memories of his wife are probably related to this. Renarin suggests trying to prove whether or not the visions are true, and Dalinar sends for Navani. She agrees to help, but she also macks on Dalinar something awful. End of chapter. Dalinar's not having it. <laughs> time, time into the shut up and time into this chair. <laughs> so you and I have a joke between us, a private joke, mm -hmm. where they were about to make slightly public, by slightly public, <laughs> by disclosing on this podcast because that's what we do. <laughs> it is episode sixty nine. <laughs> Whoa, it's not that it's not that private, is it? <laughs> no. So we have a private joke between us that when you're you're in a relationship, as long as we've been in a relationship, mm -hmm. you you sometimes take turns either being the Pepe Le Pew oh, yeah. <laughs> or being the, the cat that accidentally gets the white stripe painted down yes. its back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sometimes you just trade off a little bit. Yeah. Who's got to be the Pepe Le Pew? Yeah. <laughs> well, Navani oh. is the Pepe Le Pew oh. of this relationship. Yes, she is. <laughs> Dang, it was, girl. It was, I mean, it was masterful. Though her melon trick was cute. Oh, yeah. She so she, she shows up. It was up masterful. She has got, she's got it all planned out how she's going to get Dalinar alone. But it's interesting because Dalinar obviously is, he is way into Navani. He's, he's been in, he's been in love with her since he first met her. Um, he still thinks she's gorgeous. He thinks she's amazing. Loves her perfume. Loves her perfume. Likes her lips to everything about her. He's all about Navani, but it's his sense of honor that he can't relax. He can't allow himself to uh, behave towards her in any way that would dishonor his brother's memory. But Navani is, is not respectful of that. She is still all over him. So it's interesting to me that I feel like so much of this chapter and so much of this book even is about cultural norms and cultural biases. 
and how they color the way you think, but also how people are blind to it. They're blind to their own cultural biases. And I feel like within this overall wider culture, if you're not Dalinar, then what Navani's trying to do, it's not really violating any real norms for the Alethi people. It's only this sort of antiquated idea of the past that Dalinar is holding tightly to that he has trouble sort of parting with it. I don't think many other people would really bat an eye other than what he says, which is it would make him look like a hypocrite. Well, that's partly true. I think there there is there is a taboo there. Hmm. That if Dalinar and Navani were to have an open relationship, they would definitely be facing some judgment. But it it wouldn't be like earth shattering, like you're you're exiled or anything like that. But there Mm -hmm. definitely is kind of a taboo where, where that would not be, at least at their station, considered proper. It'd be however Kirk Cameron dating a stripper. That's very adept. Like an active stripper, not like a reform stripper, not like Lindsay Lohan. (laughs) Everyone knows that how she got her start, right? It was like Freaky Friday. I was going to say, well, when she was, I mean, stripper. (laughs) No, I mean, come on, it was after that. I'm not, I mean, it's ridiculous. But yeah, but Navani doesn't seem to care what whatever they would face. You know, she's... Well, and it's interesting, Navani is Yasna's mom. Right. And Yasna also could give two fucks about societal norms. Don't, don't care. Got my own life to live. The cultural bias thing actually comes more up in the vision part, but... Yes. It, but it all sort of ties in. And so for me, this in the book is where I really start um, loving Renarin's character as well. You know, he's he's really just kind of low-key crafty here. You know, this problem that that Adolin and Dalinar have been wrestling with. What are we going to do? These visions, they're making me all crazy and blah, blah, blah. And, and Renarin's just like, well, why don't we try and figure out if they're true or not? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a basic premise no one seems to have thought of. I, I mean, for... <laughs> Again, for people who can't read, like yeah. that just isn't where they're they just don't even doesn't even occur to them. Well, and it's a very basic scientific concept, but you're dealing with a bunch of stupid men. Who, stupid men. Stupid and all their stupid pockets. Men. <laughs> pockets and their big swords. <laughs> all these places to put your change, but yeah, thinking with your big sword. <laughs> Not a brain in your head. Not a damn one. So so it is, you know, to him, that would be a relatively creative idea. You right. know, for for most of us in modern society, it's like seems common sense. But uh, but for Renarin to come up with that without the tradition to kind of fall back on. Show some some intelligence there. And so we get to see the recreants. Yeah. So the vision. The vision. Lots of stuff going on in this vision. And we get to see, again, as you said, the recreants. So I have several notes about 
the vision itself. Yeah, lay them on me. So not uh, the first of which is before we figure out what's actually going on. You know, Dalinar shows up at this fort. There's all these soldiers running around. There's something going on. I don't quite know what it is. And then the leader of the fort shows up, and and Dalinar is just stunned, stunned that it's a dark-eyed leader, and they're treating him as though he was a light-eyed bright lord. Right. You know, and that's where I talked about the cultural bias. Like he's right. so blind to his own arbitrary social norm. That like it does like he's he doesn't even realize how much of an idiot he's being, you mm-hmm. know. Like, oh my god, like it's earth shattering that somebody with brown eyes could know how to boss men around a fort. <laughs> right. It's just you know it, It's an interesting commentary. Yeah, because at this point we know Dalinar's not like a stupid character. Right. So to make that sort of observation, you know, this late sort of in the game is, I mean, the only thing it could mean to me is just to demonstrate how difficult it is to let go of those norms that you've grown up with and your whole society is based around. Just seems crazy. You know. So then we get into figuring out what's actually going on, and we find out that it's the Radiance. The Radiance have come, and they're denouncing their Radiance, you know, and they're throwing all their shard gear to the woods, right? Or, you know, they're abandoning it. This is where I'm a little perplexed as to what's going on. This is like a a world-changing event, and these these guys were clearly trying to make some huge diva like statement. They're gonna th- put their shard blade in. The, I'm throwing my dick in the dirt. I'm throwing off my shard plate, and I'm gonna walk away without a word. And they choose to do it wordlessly in front of some tiny ass remote outpost with like 40 dudes there that seems really strange to me if the radiance were really like renouncing and making some big statement why would they choose to do it here now there might be things we learn later that kind of shed light on this and and help it to make more sense but it seems strange to me that this of all places would be where they would choose to have their Rosa Parks kind of moment, like where they're going to be like, nope, this is where I'm drawing a line in the sand. This is where I'm stopping what's going on in a place where no one's really going to see it, this lost little place on the map. So it causes me to wonder if these visions aren't actually historical, historically accurate events. And maybe they are more metaphorical statements about what has happened. Well, I think we're going to find out because Navani is researching them. So, and unfortunately, a lot of these events are things that they don't have any recorded history of. Yeah. But... 
Well, if they find nothing about this fort, you know, there's, I can't remember the name of it. Um, Fe- uh, Feverstone Keep. If they find nothing out about Feverstone Keep, I don't, that won't mean anything to me. So, so there is a battle going on. Yeah, I understand that it's a part of a larger battle. And that they they yeah. all of a sudden turn around and started running from the enemy and just stopped to a to an individual and then put down their swords and walked away. So I don't know if it's like if it's trying to say, "Oh, we chose this place." Mm, okay. To like make a statement. Oh, okay. They're like in the middle of a battle, all of a sudden, in the middle of this battle, all of the radiance turned around and ran the opposite direction, like as fast as they could, and then stopped and without a word to each other or anyone else, threw down their swords and armor and walked away. So, th- so okay. So, this is not, this is not them showing up and protesting in the red square this is yeah they're not like hey let's go to feverstone keep they're just like you know okay this is more of a this is not tiananmen square i'm standing in front of the tank this is right oh shit there's tanks right <laughs> like it's a okay i see what you're saying all right but but it's it's weird it's a weird scene it's very eerie that it is how how or why these people all did this. And again, that it's not like the, you, you picture the recreants or the radiance deciding to abandon their posts as maybe them all getting around talking and being like, Hey, or, but just that to a person, they did it. Yeah. Without saying a word. It's very, it's very weird. Definitely. Well, raises that's why a lot of I questions. assume that there was some conversation going on beforehand. And they're like, we're going to show these 40 bastards at Feverstone. Keep what's up. No, because it sounds like from the report, that Dalinar overheard was that they were fighting. They were like, mm-hmm. there's a battle. The radiance were at the front. They were fighting. All of a sudden they started <laughs> just turn around and started booking it the other way. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, I, I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's, that's the way that I read it. So again, we've noted before that the radiance have both male and female fighters. I don't know that we really speculated on what that might mean about this, prior civilization or this much, much earlier civilization. Uh, If they allow women to fight, does that mean they're less restrictive across all gender roles? I don't know that we know, but it could be, could be a good indication. Also, I noted shard plate. He said the shard plates either glow blue or amber. Mm -hmm. Now we've seen reference to stormlight, glowing with a blue light multiple times, including with Seth. I don't remember ever seeing reference to it glowing amber. So what is it that glows amber? Obviously, you can't tell me, but it's just interesting that now all of a sudden there's a a different color showing up. I, I'm assuming that has some relevance. I don't really know what it what it is per se. We also know that everything, st- when the radiance walked away. The glow dissipated. Yes, the glow goes away, went away. Yeah. It was, the way it was written, it made it sound as though, it was unclear, but I didn't take it as though it was simply like the light dissipating over time. I took it as though it was when Dalinar, relief in this, um, vision approaches them 
they lose their light. So that was unclear if it was just a matter of time and it was whatever was slowly leaving or leaking out, or if it was... Sorry, something just occurred to me. Um, or whether it was their presence. So uh, I'm turning to that spot now. Uh, Dalinar is um, running forward. Dalinar reached the shard blades. They sprouted from the rock like glittering silver trees, a forest of weapons. They glowed softly in a way his own shard blade never had. But as he dashed among them, their light started to fade. A terrible feeling struck him, a sense of immense tragedy, of pain and betrayal. Stopping where he stood, he gasped his hand to his chest. What was that dreadful feeling, that screaming he swore he could almost hear? So the light started to fade when he got among them. Yeah, that's why I didn't know it was... It wasn't like it like blinked out. No, no, I got that part I got. It was just, it was written in such a way that it was unclear whether it was simply the fact that they were abandoned or whether it was his presence, mm-hmm. it was unclear what was it that initiated because it mm-hmm. said as he walked among them, right. they began. So it was like when he showed up, that was the moment they began. It doesn't have to necessarily mean that. Right. It's just unclear. So then we have this radiant, this who who looks a lethe. again, who has this Alethi appearance, who says to Dalinar, I'm going to bother to speak to you, but I'm not going to reveal any usable information until it's plot convenient. Then he smashed a beer bottle against his head and said, Roll Tide! And he was gone. This guy shows up and he's like, speaking in riddles, he's like, I'm going to show up and bother to be here And I'm going to be the one guy, you know, out of this vision who bothers to communicate to you. But I'm not going to tell you shit all that's actually useful. Well, that's what's happened in every single vision that he's had. Doesn't make it any less stupid. Have faith. I I have faith. All right. It just pisses me off, or it will piss me off, if there's no reason why this guy would... The voice. The voice would be so fucking intentionally cryptic. Like, don't be cryptic because it's plot convenient. There better be a reason for it. So Dalinar then wakes up, and he says, I have returned. Calm your tits. (laughs) (laughs) And Hadelin says, tits? My tits were so confused. I didn't know there were tits here. Yeah. Calm your tits, by the way. My favorite phrase. Absolutely. Absolutely my favorite phrase. Absolutely. Because it suggests that your tits might not be called. (laughs) It suggests that your tits could be wild. (laughs) And listen, (laughs) in... In my experience, there's no such thing as good tits or bad tits, wild tits. There's just trained tits and untrained tits. 
these are these are not bad tits. They're just they're just untrained. <laughs> so those girls have not gone wild. They just haven't been housebroken. Calm your tits. It's my favorite phrase ever. It's my favorite as well. It's the best. So then Dalinar, in this conversation after the fact, you know, when they're trying to figure out what's going on, they're debating where these visions could have come from. And Dalinar says, I suspected at first that it could have been from the Almighty himself. Mm -hmm. But now I'm thinking maybe they are real. Maybe they are metaphysical. But maybe that's not where they come from. Could it be that this is part of the old magic? And, you know, Aelin's like, the old magic? That only shows up in children's stories. We we know that's not real. This is crazy. Calm your tits. And Dalinar then reveals, no, no, no. It's true, boys. Sit around. Let me tell you a tale about your mother. Never mind, I forgot that story. <laughs> <laughs> and then he proceeds to, you know, we proceed to learn that the reason why he can't remember this woman who was obviously very important in his life is because he pulled a Jim Carrey in a drama movie moment, tried to erase Kate Winslet from his from his memory. Mm-hmm. And that was what he asked for from from the old magic. The Night Watcher. The Night Watcher, yep. So. Well, so we don't know exactly what he asked for. We don't. Just to specify. Because what we learned from the interlude before was that when you go to the old magic, you ask for what you want. You ask for your boon. The Night Watcher gives you what she thinks you deserve and then a curse to go along with it. So, yeah, so we don't know if he went there and said, take this pain away from me. And she said, fine, I'll just take all the memory away from you. And by the way, you also have the power to calm jittery tits. <laughs> like, we don't... <laughs> don't know. We don't know. It could happen. It could have happened that way. I'm just saying, Navani's tits don't seem that calm. They No, they don't. That's true. That's a good piece of evidence there. That's that's for sure. So it could have been that he, he went and said, take this away from me and got all the memories erased and the curse was, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm going to open your mind to this other realm, and you're going to have vi- visits from somebody who shows up and says cryptic shit that won't amount to anything for about 3,000 more pages. <laughs> that could be the curse, and we're all fucking cursed with that. <laughs> curse goes around, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but then that's when we have the old moment with Navani and... He says, don't you taunt me, devil woman. I know your plans. I know you're trying to steal my precious bodily fluids. <laughs> then we roll on. Roll Tide! So Dalinar's obviously wound pretty tight. Yeah. At this point. Yeah, he's, he's a coiled spring. It's what he's been sitting on a lot of backed up, <laughs> bottled up. It's bottled bad. Emotions. It, exactly. So He's got a lot of emotions running through his vein. It's true. 
Chapter 53 is called Dunny. I'm just saying, don't poke him with a needle. <laughs> Keep away from sharp edges. Keep <laughs> Dalinar away from sharp objects. The corner of a table, perhaps. <laughs> he's going to blow. He's he's going to fucking blow. <laughs> and there's going to be an eruption of life spren like you've never seen And, you know, he's going to impregnate all the women. (laughs) She comes in there and she's like, I wanted to get your son away from me and us so we could have a little private moment together so I could stick you with his pen. (laughs) (laughs) She's got a hat pin with her. Tink, tink, tink. (laughs) No wonder he wants to get away, away from her. You've got to stop me. Please make this go on. (laughs) Chapter 53 is called Dunny. We open on a bridge assault. Just as bridge four is being placed, Dunny ends up hit by an arrow and trampled by Sadius's cavalry. Moash barely saves Kaladin from being trampled as well. Kaladin really struggles with Dunny's loss. Dunny represents the ignored and forgotten souls that he's been unable to save. To make up for this, Kaladin just starts saving every damn body. His crew questions this decision for good reasons, but ultimately they're impressed and supportive of their bridge leader. Moash and Teft have particularly strong reactions, with Teft tearing up and Moash finally believing that Kaladin is what he claims to be. I feel like this chapter was relatively straightforward. Not a lot of hidden things in here. It was, but I think it had an important moment for Kaladin. Yeah, and I'm not trying to negate it. And at this point, he decides either he's letting go of his whole save my crew and damn everybody else, uh, or he's expanded his idea of what his crew is to include all of the bridgemen, which is significant because the other bridge crews have not been kind to bridge four. They've been kind of antagonistic. They've kind of looked down on them and made fun of them and resented them for the way that they've acted. So as this battle is going on, so first off, we see Dunny. He gets hit with arrows from both sides. And up until this point, they haven't lost anyone because Kaladin has been running at the front. And unbeknownst to him, he's sucking in Stormlight and he's... Because he's stupid. Rick making air. Well, we're going to get into that in, in a minute. But he's he's so happy that he's made it through this battle. He hasn't lost a, a crew member. He sees Dunny get hit by arrows from both sides and then trampled by his own his own soldiers, basically. And at that point, Kaladin reaches a point where he decides, you know, he sees a a wounded member of another bridge crew that f it, I'm going to save that them they can all. Save, yeah. I'm going to save everyone I can. And what's surprising as well is Bridge Four's reaction. I mean, a few of them are like, whoa, hey, are we going to carry everyone back? Like, what are we? Yeah, yeah. We're not bringing in extra money. Like, what are we going to do here? But really, they don't fight him hard. And in the end, they're kind of proud of what they're doing. So it's Mm. just so much character growth at this point. Well, it seems fairly obvious. You know, if we look at Kaladin on the, you know, as a character and we say, okay, where, what are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? Well, I mean, the strengths are fairly obvious. 
let's talk about the weaknesses, right? So one of the things that's obviously holding him back is his hatred of the light eyes. We had, you know, in the last section where we talked about the idea that the light eyes are this way because they're in power and they're abusing that power. But in situations where it's reversed, it would it would be the same experience just with a different group of people. These are people, people are flawed. So arbitrarily hating these people is no different than hating anybody else, right? So we have that sort of coming out, but Kaladin, he hears it, but he still behaves the same way. So this is obviously a thing that is holding him back and, you know, causing him to experience these negative emotions and hatred and things that are unproductive, right? So this is, I feel like, just sort of a break in the in the armor, like a beginning to crack that idea, you know, breaking down the barriers very, very slowly until we hopefully get to a place where Kaladin is somebody who I think we want to see care for everybody. And I think that's going to be necessary because I think we're going to end up in a uh, scenario here where it's going to be less about the Alethi versus Alethi and then less about the Alethi versus the people from Yaakov Ed and more about the Alethi versus uh, the Alethi and everybody on Roshar versus the desolation. You know, so there's going to be a time to bring everyone together. All these visions keep telling Dalinar, unite them, unite them, unite them. And he has it in his brain, unite the Alethi High Princes. Great. That's step one. I don't think that's what the voice is trying to tell him. It's trying to tell him, unite everyone in Roshar. And it seems like Kaladin is going to need to get over that prejudice he has before he has any chance of doing that. I think you're absolutely right. So let's talk for a minute about whether Kaladin is stupid for not realizing what's going on. Let's talk about it. I think yes. Yes. So your answer is yes. <laughs> Obviously. Well, I mean, as readers, we're getting beat over the head with it. Right. Right. And now I'm now I'm sticking by my statement. I'm I'm standing I'm I'm sticking with my statement. He should have enough evidence at some point at this point to I don't I'm not expecting him to know what it is, but to recognize that there is something weird going on. And it's not really until uh, the next chapter with him that he starts to go, hey, wait a minute. Well, the next chapter is when it, it puts it out there that he has realized, but it's something he's been thinking about and noticing since he was healed from the high storm. Mm -hmm. So at this point, he knows there's something. He's healing more quickly from wounds, but there, there's nothing, nothing in his cultural frame of reference to even suggest that it's possible to divert arrows using stormlight. You know, we have knowledge. Uh, it, in one of the very first things we read in the book, we have a Seth point of view chapter where he's it literally breaks down exactly what he's doing and how he's doing it. So we yeah. have this frame of reference that this is possible on this planet. So you're saying Kaladin doesn't realize 
that he's in a fantasy novel? He does not. He does not realize it. But it's just interesting, and it's easy to forget that for- Where does he think he goes when I close the book? I don't know. Maybe the cognitive realm. So yeah, for our, our characters that we're following now, they have some vague stories that the Radiants could fly and do some other kind of crazy stuff, but- no idea how that actually happened and no idea, you know, even the heralds themselves, these, these great magical beings, they're not even sure if they were real. So for anyone to, they're just not out there looking for supernatural experiences. And especially for Kaladin, who is an unusually educated man. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't see it as outside belief that he would not notice what's going on. Other than, gee, I'm something, well, we know that at this point he thinks he's cursed. Yeah, So true. He, mm-hmm. he, he has been suspecting that there is something supernatural going on with him. But it, and it's interesting to look at his, the importance of perspective. So for him, he sees everything from this glass half empty perspective. He, he's, he suspects there's something supernatural going on, but he sees it as I'm cursed to always live while everyone around me dies. Yeah, Not, that, hey, yeah. maybe there's something supernatural going on where I happen to like live through horrible situations where everybody dies. No, and that's a good point. And I, I can accept that as an understanding, you know, him fixating on that. We already know that he has issues with bouts of depression. So for him to sort of take that stance on it, that I can accept. This chapter was sort of a strange experience for me in issues where Brandon Sanderson will take one concept and just hammer it and beat you over the head with the obvious stick about it over and over and over again. You know, Kaladin dodging arrows, right? But then in other areas, he's going to throw out a little kernel of some random mystery you couldn't possibly begin to guess at so it's just an interesting thing i noted in this chapter where he you know in some ways he's making it impossible for you to ignore what's going on and in other ways he's making it impossible for you to even begin to guess at what's going on it's interesting and we talk about this a lot in this podcast how the pace at which you read affects that as well of course yeah because for me the the first time I read this, I tore through it for most of the book being not super interested. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it a lot more when I slowed down, but I didn't catch like half of the things that, that you're catching or that we're bringing up on this on this read through mm-hmm. because I was just reading too quickly. Yeah. So it didn't feel over the that I was being hit over the head with, oh, he's sucking him stormlight, you know, because oh, okay. I was reading yeah, yeah. so quickly. Mm-hmm. The way that we're reading as slowly as we are, taking notes on each chapter probably makes that feel more obvious. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And and, and certainly the little kernels and stuff, it was like, psh, you know, I mean, I geeked out so hard when you talked about there being a, an alternate Roshar. I was like, <laughs> what? 
Um, but, but I think that's just good storytelling as well, because yeah. particularly in in a world this complicated and alien from our own, it's not like we took medieval France and you know, slapped a dragon in it, you know, and put mm-hmm. another name on it, right? This is a very, very huge departure from a lot of our, you know, navel-gazing historical fantasy where mm-hmm. we live in this sort of medieval fantasy world. If he was to throw all of this crap at you, you know, and front load the world building and not give it to you in different paces then it would be absolutely unreadable because the first 2,000 pages would be like reading an encyclopedia mm-hmm. you know, before you ever got to any actual story. It also, I think, if you're an author or you're thinking about writing, I think it gives you pause to think, how much do I want my world to depart from our world? Because mm-hmm. the more it departs from our world the more I have to world build and the more skillfully I have to be able to give that information out in a way that doesn't cause people to choke on exposition. Mm-hmm. I only have one other note about this chapter. What's that? And it's the little blurb before the chapter. The snapter. The snapter. Thank you. He must pick it up. The fallen title, the tower, the crown... And the spear. Mm. Obviously about Kaladin. In a Kaladin chapter. What do you think it means? Well, I'll tell you what I think it means when it comes to predictions. I can't wait. Are you ready for chapter 54? Yes, I am. Chapter 54 is called Gibletish. Gibletish? I don't know. Gobbledygook. I think it's gibletish. So Dalinar is at a feast. None of the other high princes want to sit with him, but Wit joins his table with some cryptic warnings. He tells Dalinar that he can call him Hoyd before bidding him farewell. The Cosmere, unfortunately, takes precedence over free food, is what he says. Sadius reveals the results of his investigation into the king's girth strap. To Dalinar's surprise, Sadius exonerates him. Dalinar convinces Sadius to try a joint plateau assault, promising him a shard blade if he wins one. So this was a big chapter. Yeah, a lot happens in this chapter. Where do you want to start? Well, I think the the first thing that hits you when you're reading this chapter, if you're like me and you got your speculation pants on, you know, in your tinfoil hat. Is you, you look think, cute in those pants. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is you think Stagum and Talu, that's what we're having for dinner? Yum. <laughs> I mean, could you think of less appetizing words for food? Right. Stagum. Talu, that just, yeah. It doesn't sound like something I want to eat. No. It sounds disgusting. And Dalinar is keeping his distance from Navani so she can't get her hands on his precious bodily fluids. But then we have the reveal of Wit as being Hoyd, 
with his arrow-shaped face and his fist of the North Star punches. So another one of these random mysteries. Now, not not answered. Like, like right. I don't want to... Like, it's definitely not something that's been answered. But something that's at least getting built upon. So we get to see the great white polar bear of the jungle again. Right. <laughs> we don't really know what it means, but at least we know that... You know, it's not a random throwaway line. So, of course, I had to go back and reread. Right. Interlude number one, Ishik, all right. about Hoyd and when he was referenced, didn't really give me any more indication about who he was, didn't mm-hmm. tell me anything more about that. But what it did is it brought me to the observation that the guy who was looking for him was another one of these random people who looked like an Alethi, mm-hmm. but had different eyes and didn't talk like an Alethi. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, after reading Interlude 7, pointed me back to her and then back into the vision. So I'm just, I'm seeing all these random people, but these these Alethi lookalike people always seem to pop up in these random places. They're not, you know, they're not, you're not going to find them in the Shattered Plains. You're going to find them out in, you know, in the Reshi Isles or, you know, it, don't really know what that means, but it's just an interesting thing to observe. I haven't been able to really wrap my brain around it yet. Cool. So didn't find out who Hoyd was, but did find out that there's, now a whole other set of mysterious randos walking around this continent looking for something. And there's a bunch of people running around looking for Hoyd. And a bunch of people looking for Hoyd, who answers by a bunch of different names, you know. Apparently. And Hoyd says, you know, I'd like to stick around and find out what's going to happen to your boring ass, <laughs> but I have a Cosmere to save um, I thought it, I thought it was interesting. He says the winds are changing like a world spinning, and I thought, "Damn it! The continent actually looks like it's spinning. Mm-hmm. It actually looks like that. It does." And at first, I thought that was just a random sort of thing, but I don't think it is. And I think this line is meant to be taken literally. Hmm. I think it's meant to be taken literally. We will see. It caused me to think, and I don't think this is real, but when the when Kaladin was in the high storm and he's kind of floating through the continent, he's sort of following along that S sort of shaped curve of the continent. Mm-hmm. And I started to think, well, maybe, maybe it's not that he's actually following the continent. Maybe the high storm is moving straight and the continent is just shifting. The world is just spinning around him and that's what's giving it that appearance. I don't think that's actually the case, but it's something that did cross my mind. And it's interesting that Wit uses the word Cosmere because that's not something we've heard anyone yeah, else good, okay, yeah, good talk. Point. I mean, we've talked about the Cosmere. Because I didn't think about that, but that's a good point. We know that Brandon Sanderson's connected worlds are referred to as the Cosmere, but no one else on 
on Roshar has used that word or even talked about other planets or any kind of knowledge that there might be other planets or people, they don't talk about space or anything like that. Yeah, that's interesting. The other thing I noted was he said, I'll return if I'm not killed. Probably will anyway. And so I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. So this Hoyd slat slash wit guy can come back to life. So it's like if he goes out there and falls, if he's spent, he's delivered on his promise, he's come through in a pinch, he's put his seed in your garden, he's put the batter in the baby basket, he can come back again? I'm talking about semen. And he can do it again? I got you. What is he, 19? <laughs> I think he's much older than that. Well, and I have I have no excuse then. <laughs> so he also at one point looks at Dalinar and just says a random word. Yeah. Adenalsium. And, Dal- and it's almost like he's testing Dalinar to see if he how he'll react or if he knows what that means. And Dalinar's like, what? And he's like, never mind. Nothing. Nah, nah not important. Isn't it funny how gibberish words almost sound like real world mm-hmm. words? Yeah, I didn't quite know how to take that because he throws this random word out and then it seems like he tries to cover for it by right. saying, oh, it's just a gibberish word. Right. You know, but when I'm reading it, I'm like, well, it sounds like a gibberish word to me. Is the observation he's trying to make, because he, he goes on about it. He's like, mm-hmm. he's like, could you take a man and take him apart and then try to put the bloody chunks back together, mm-hmm. would it still resemble a man? And I'm like, wait a minute, is it the is it is he trying to cover for the word, or is he trying to make some sort of statement about you split up Roshar into these separate kingdoms, and then you try to shove it back together again, and it just doesn't quite work, does it? Or is it maybe both? It's a bit of a roundabout way to say that, but Wit is obviously a pretty unpredictable character as far as what's going to come out of his mouth. Well, and you can sort of see how that would apply. It is roundabout, mm-hmm. I agree, which is why I was confused. But but Roshar under the Radiance was one united kingdom, one kingdom, one continent, Everybody united, working together in different sort of ways, and something has happened, which has thrown all that into chaos, and it's fighting, everyone fighting and squabbling, you know, and Dalinar being told, unite them. So you can see how that could be an appropriate question for him to ask Dalinar, to cause him to try to think about. Yeah. Put a pin in it. So I didn't know if it was really a misdirect or not. You seem to be telling me that it is. I am not telling you anything. I'm just saying, put a pin in adenalsium. Okay. Highlight it. So we got the, gosh, just unpacking that conversation with wit is is pretty heavy. Um, There's a lot of things in, like... It's it's beginning to look like the yarn wall of things in this chapter relating back to that chapter. Oh yeah, like it's, and it just it just keeps going. Yeah, I, I'm never sure how much to talk about what connects to other books, but um, 
well, I don't think we should talk about anything that connects to other books. I'm talking about, you know, just the things that are even within the same section of chapters. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's this this whole story behind the story going on that starts to come out more in this series, I think, than any of the other series. Oh, gotcha. In terms of the Cosmere references? Yes. Gotcha. Which, yeah, I'm... I'm way too far away from that to even you're just trying to to figure out what's going on in this book yeah but that's what i i like so much about brandon sanderson's books is you can keep coming back and discovering more it gives it a lot more readability i'm sure i'm sure it does i don't know that i'll ever read the 47 books that he's been able to write to to come back and tie it all together but i did read 20 freaking dune books you did so and they're not as they're not all as good. They're not nearly as good. <laughs> Most of them are not nearly as good. Unfortunately. It's, it's fun to go back after you learn about the connections. So the other connection that I saw in here was uh, potentially two of them in the conversation with Hotham and his ardent. So this other high prince has his ardent and then this ambassador from some other country. Onak. Onak, yeah, thank you. And they're uh chit-chatting and they end up talking about Imul and Takari and they're fighting over the city of Sasemelex Dar. And again, another reference to Imul and to this city and Dalinar starts sort of asking questions about it. So just another sort of pin in the board Mm -hmm. on this city name once again. But the other part of it, too, is that the Ardent insults the ambassador from this other location, and the guy storms off. And when he does, the Ardent reveals that that was all part of an elaborate negotiating strategy to get the ambassador to accept a deal from the High Prince, which shows us once again how savvy these people, these high princes are at being able to play people. And I think also how Dalinar is out of his depth when it comes to that in the political maneuvering of Alucard. He's he's only seeing the game at the surface level. And these guys are playing multi, they're playing, you know, three dimensional chess, right? But then the Ardent says, or Dalinar says, well, why would you tell me that? And the Arden says, well, we want you to understand that we are looking out for you. I forget exactly what he says, but something to the effect, we want to show goodwill to you as well. And I was thinking on the first read that he was talking on behalf of Hotham. And I realized in rereading it that that is not who he is talking on behalf of. Yes. He has his own set of agendas going on here. And it caused me to think, is this a sent another situation similar to Capsule? Because it has a lot of the same echoes. And it also is happening right after it. So, it's, you know, it's only a couple chapters after we, we realize what's going on with... Uh, with Capsule, and we get even more revealed to us about how Capsule should have not known. After this 
um, he doesn't get a chance to get into it with the guy because Adolin comes up and interrupts him, but he wonders, he's like, Ardents are not supposed to get involved in politics. But we had an Ardent who was involved in an assassination attempt on Yasna, and now we have this other Ardent. Now, I don't know if that's meant to be a misdirect, but it's those things are placed where they are on purpose. Possibly. Not possibly, definitely. The only question is, is it, was it giving us a, a, a fairly ham-fisted person trying to impersonate an ardent to get us to think that this guy's not really an ardent? Or to show us the whoever this is is actually playing a much more sophisticated game? I don't know. Well, we we think, don't know enough to I know. I think the difference between the capsule situation and this one is that Yasna and Shalon were both visiting Carbranth. So they wouldn't be expected to know the Ardents in the area. Yeah, good point. And it's mentioned that Capsule spoke with familiarity of the other Ardents, but when she questioned them, nobody really knew who he was. Yeah. You know, he's just kind of guy walking around in Ardent robes, you know, and he kind of wave and be like, oh, hey, you know, he's like a wedding crasher. Um, but this guy... But Dalinar's been here with this guy for six it, years. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it wasn't like, oh, hey, that guy is wearing ardent robes. Let me pull him into my inner schemes and help me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's that's it's not quite the same situation. And that's a good point. That's a good point. At the same time, it does sound like this ardent is offering Dalinar friendship, perhaps on behalf of the Ardentia, which is interesting. Because they're not supposed to get involved in politics, but Dalinar reflects that they've been sucked in anyway. Also, it's interesting because I get the impression that with his wanting, with his potentially talking about having visions, that may be something that the Ardentia would want to steer away from. True. There is a very strong taboo against predicting the future. Yeah. And while Dalinar's visions are of the past, it definitely smacks of something that the Ardentia is not going to approve of. It does. So uh, another reason why it would be unusual for somebody to want to come and show goodwill to him, unless these people, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why it could be. We don't know enough at this point to, to really be able to guess. Right. So the other thing that happens here at the end of this chapter is that Sadius comes out and he makes his speech. So Dalinar is convinced that Sadius is going to accuse him of attempting to assassinate the king. He pressures him to make the announcement because he knows he's going to make the announcement because Wit told him at a time and a place where it is helpful to Dalinar, where he might best be able to escape being arrested which i also find interesting that like he doesn't even think like i could defend myself like legally in a court of law he's like no if i get accused we're fighting our way out mm -hmm. of here like yeah. that's that's just the way it's gonna be handled like does there's no other even thought about right it. like that's how we that's a normal course of how we would mm -hmm. handle this you know yeah. so i thought that was interesting but he pressures Sadius into making the announcement only to find out that Sadius is not accusing him at all. In fact, he goes out of his way to say it doesn't make sense 
for Dalinar to have been the one to have done it. And then they have a little confrontation at the end, and they decide, you know, once again, we see how Dalinar's self-righteousness can cause him to be a jerk at times. And so My favorite line of this chapter is, you know what your problem is, Dalinar? <laughs> you got untrained tits. <laughs> and they agree, you know, to, to, to have a joint um, plateau raid together. But what I thought was most interesting is that he reveals as a part of that that there does appear, assuming what he's saying is true, and we don't have any reason to think it isn't, there does appear to be a plot against Elakar's life, and it appears that it happened within his own kind of inner circle. The people who were preparing him to put on his armor, they replaced the king's normal saddle with a different saddle after Dalinar's grooms had handed it over to him. So it appears to be somebody relatively close to the king. And Sadius even speculates that the accident with the the Chull and the Chasm Fiend was orchestrated as well, which is one of the things I predicted. Though, like him, I couldn't begin to think of how it could have actually happened. So there does a, there is something going on there with somebody attempting to 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 try to kill Elicar, or at least make it look like they're trying to kill Elicar. We have all these sort of plots going off, and we've seen some ham-fisted plots, like with Capsule. It's tough to know is a plot that failed to kill the king because something didn't, you know, is that because it really wasn't a well-thought-out plan, or was it an attempt to try to discredit Dalinar, which is what Sadia suspects it was, but not really an attempt on his life? It's hard to know, you know, what all that means. And what's interesting as well is even after Sadius goes out and lays out all the evidence why Dalinar is innocent. Dalinar still comes up to him afterward and says, thanks for not going through with it. Like his, his belief that Sadius was out to get him is, is unwavering. Yeah. Until Sadius is like, listen, you dick. I, I took this job because I wanted to prove you innocent. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I think, I think you're losing it. I think your way of King's book is full of crap. But that doesn't mean I want to see you, you know, get accused of something that you obviously didn't do and let the real person who's trying to kill Elicar go free. He's like, you know. Yeah. Well, and also he says, is it so hard for you to conceive that somebody else could want to do the right thing? Obviously it is. Obviously it is. (laughs) Take your Messiah complex somewhere else, Dalinar. You and Gandhi and Mother Teresa can all go over there and fuck off together. But it's an interesting character beat because up until now, we've only seen Sadius be just absolutely vile to everyone around him. Well, you know, we know that. I mean, when we see it from like the Bridgman's point of view, he looks like, you know, a cruel despot. Well, he's done nothing but mock Dalinar and find ways to put him down in front of the king every interaction that he's had with him as well. Yeah, and but again, that goes to that is the cultural norm within their society. 
I'm not, you know, and how blind he is to it. Because again, Dalinar doesn't, I'm sorry, Sadius doesn't think of himself as sitting in the background behind the battle and twirling his mustache as Mm -hmm. Bridgman get killed. Right. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He's got a fucked up point of view, but that is just as reflective on the overall society of the Alethi as it is on Sadius himself. I'm not taking responsibility away from Sadius. He should bear responsibility for it. I'm just saying it's also a part of this culture that they live in where it's completely normative to absolutely ridicule Dalinar because his nephew, the king, does it in front of everybody too. This mm-hmm. That's just the way they are. There are a bunch of chads at the seventh grade lunchroom table <laughs> tearing each other down. So what's up with that saddle strap, do you think? I mean, I think I think Sadius is right. I think mm-hmm. somebody, I have no idea who, but somebody is attempting to try to destroy the Colin family because that's a two-for-one punch. You kill the king, and if you don't kill the king, you discredit his mm-hmm. uncle. Somebody's trying to destabilize him. Somebody's also trying to destabilize Yaakoved mm-hmm. as well, and somebody's trying to kill Yasna as well. I'm not even going to begin to guess at who it might be. We've spent this incredible time, almost 800 pages of this book, in a in two freaking areas on an enormous continent. So we couldn't even begin to get the whole picture. We've been in Carboranth, and we've been on the Shatter Plains. Yep. And that's it. So chapter 55... It's called An Emerald Brome. Do you have in between chapter 54 and chapter 55 a drawing of some weird device? Yes, there is a picture of some kind of fabriel, it looks like. Yeah, I could... Looks I like, mean, almost like Wolverine claws. It looks like a weird, like, gem-powered gun or yeah. something. Like, I don't, yeah, yeah, it's I interesting. I couldn't quite make it out in the in the nook. So in this chapter, we see Sadius and Dalinar's joint plateau assault through Kaladin's eyes. The men talk about Dalinar's honorable reputation, but Kaladin is determined not to fall for that one again. Later in the chasms, the crew has found an emerald brome, the highest denomination of sphere. Moash offers to swallow it. They're also able to find a bow, and Kaladin devises a plan to shoot an arrow with a pouch full of spheres tied to the bottom of it onto one of the permanent bridges. Rock shows a hidden talent for archery, and the plan goes off beautifully. So the crew now has some cash. They do, yeah. Not too shabby. Not too shabby, no. So this is the chapter I talked about where I said it, it doesn't have a really whiz-bang ending, this section that we've read. Right. We're only three chapters into a part, and you have right. to draw a line somewhere, so I didn't necessarily expect it. It doesn't mean it's a poor chapter. It just ha- it just sort of ends on a weird note with an arrow kind of stuck in a bridge, and you're like, oh, okay, that's cool. Um, right. We're seeing the Bridgman's plan come together. We, yeah, we are starting to see uh, the beginnings of the plan uh, you know, start to happen. I did find a couple of interesting things in this chapter. Mm -hmm. So first we have Sigzel once again telling us about Emul and Sisemlik's Dar when 
Kaladin asks him, have you ever seen a city that's sort of shaped like this with the, you know, and he relates and explains to him one of the cities that he saw in his vision. And Sigzel's like, oh yeah, that's totally real. Giving Kaladin more evidence that, oh shit, what I'm seeing is legitimate. Something going on. But again, that's the third reference to Emul. And I, and I think interlude seven actually happens in Sasemelec star. So I think it's the third reference to that city. Mm-hmm. What I was not 100% certain of, because I went back and reread that part in, I, I forget what chapter, I think it's 45, where um, where he is in the high storm. I mean, he crosses a couple of different cities. There's one, it, this is either, and you can hopefully clarify this, this is either the one he says that when the high storm approaches, the pressure of the storm causes it to push water away, or it was the one that had the towers where there was flashes of light. I suspect it's the latter. Yeah, I'm not sure. He describes a couple of different cities. I suspect it's the latter uh, in no small part because obviously, because that was the most important city. And so it's the one that Kaladin would bring up. But it's also where he saw the weird spheres where I thought that might have been an example of somebody soul casting or doing something to get into the cognitive realm or no, I, I think the city Sasemelec star, the city in the trenches is just one he just kind of flies over. Oh, it's not the main. No, one. it's not the main one. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Okay. Like we, I think we decided that was someplace in, in Irali. I thought it was for, yeah, I thought it was, yeah, okay. All right. I wasn't sure. So, so okay. like Dar is, is uh, down quite south. south. Yeah, it's quite right. south. Yeah. But again, third so time So again, it he comes just up. is a, a striking kind of city. And the gang is, they're like, hey, Sigzel, you're a storyteller, right? And he's like, I'm not a storyteller. You know, they, he, he's a world singer. So I, I like the, ex- the description of the world singers, that they spread peace through understanding and Sigzel says that this is a holy charge received from the heralds themselves. So that's kind of cool. We know that the Alethi were kind of given the charge to protect through fighting. Now we have another group that was apparently given this charge as well. So anyway, the gang is there bugging Sigzel. They're like, tell us a story. And they're like, well, then tell us about some cool places. Whatever. We don't care. Just talk. And, and then Kaladin then chimes in. Well, like, what about this city? And it turns out that it's real. Yeah. So then he starts thinking again about what's going on with me. There's something supernatural. It's probably terrible. He Eeyore. Indeed. And he but he gets to thinking about what am I doing here? Why am I teaching the bridgeman to fight? Am I am I just doing it because I mean it might it's there might be a possibility we could buy our way out of this. Why am I doing this the hard way? Am I just trying to replace Dalit and the the first squad that I lost? And it's just such a, a poignant theme. And it talks about how people heal from things, you know, and especially how people sometimes try to heal emotional wounds by seeking out situations and people that are similar to the ones that hurt them. You know, and you see people get in these abuse cycles and just interesting see this character go through that as well and hopefully we'll see him come out on the other side of it 
So yeah, some important character moments in this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And then we also have one of the significant events that happens in this chapter is we learn a little bit more about Shen. In when they're down there in the chasms, they go to move one of the Parshendi bodies and Shen does not like it. Mm-hmm. He loses his shit a little bit. He's not he doesn't become violent but he becomes very protective and mm-hmm. goes and kind of shoves Kaladin away. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was, in, I mean, I we don't know what yet, but it's obvious that, you know, Kaladin makes it obvious that he has thought of a way to use that. We don't know precisely how yet. But I thought it was interesting that as much as they've been very inclusive of him. And even later in this chapter, when Scar says, well, what if somebody tells Gaz? He's like, no, we're bridge four. We're not playing that game, but doesn't have any problem. Just putting this guy in a chokehold and then looting the Parshendi anyway, Mm -hmm. you know? So I thought it was interesting. The words and the treatment that they've given to him, but only so far, like they're still going to do their job. You know, but they're going to be nice about it. Sort of. <laughs> well, that's what he that's what kind he tells of. them. Yeah. It's like, but, you know, be respectful of the corpses. <laughs> yeah. Still got to loot them. You got to. You got to. So. And eventually they're able to find a bow that way, though. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Which allows them to. And I thought that was a clever idea. Mm-hmm. You know, now I was I thought it was well done that they had Rock repeatedly talk about how it's an impossible shot. Mm-hmm. This is a freaking impossible shot. You're insane for even thinking. Mm-hmm. None of you assholes are going to be able to do this. Give me that bow. Like, mm-hmm. You know, it was neat to watch how Kaladin was able to kind of manipulate him, manipulate yeah. him into into doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also how clever he is at being able to read into subtle little things mm-hmm. that people say, at least as they relate to experiences that he's had Mm -hmm. so he was able to figure out that teft had military experience Mm -hmm. and trick him into betraying that Mm -hmm. he was able to figure out that rock had experience using a bow and trick him into Mm -hmm. saying something about it but when teft repeatedly says strange that none of the arrows hit you he's like yeah i guess Mm -hmm. you know do you ever feel like you're light (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> like you're made of light. <laughs> that he's like, what? what are you talking about? You know? Um, so Teft at multiple stages, not in this chapter, but all throughout the book says, you know, blessed Kellek or something right. along Kellek's breath, Kellek's breath. Right. And we got a little bit of a glimpse of how he's searching for something. Right. Right. And, I'm assuming Kellek and Kalak are the same, just sort of bastardized versions right. over time right. of the same thing. And then Rock says, Oh, Kalakalian's ghost. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? He's speaking to Kaladin. Mm-hmm. And he says, Kala Kalin's ghost and 
Teft is all alarmed because he's like, oh my God, I think I may have found what I've been looking for. And he worships Kellick. Kaladin is Kalek from the Prelude Reborn. Kala Kalin's ghost mm-hmm. is him saying to Kaladin, You are the resurrection of Kalak, but just hiding it in a clever little way. Hmm. He basically calls him the resurrection of Kalak in that phrase to his face. But nobody knows it. Nobody recognizes that that's what it is. Teft uses that. No, Rock, Rock uses, uses it. Okay. it. But I mean, his Kala, Kalak, Kalek, Kalakalin. There's a lot of K's going on there. It, it's, it seems to me that that's where this is going. We'll see. So that phrase I thought was interesting. So that wraps up our coverage of these chapters. It does. All right, so let's talk about what's been going on with our Facebook group and all the cool interactions that we've had with people. Because we have had all the interactions with people. The Facebook group page has been phenomenal. We've had conversations about all kinds of series outside of what we're covering. We even talked about some non fantasy books if you can imagine it (laughs) a couple things on there i did want to bring up in honor of our 69th episode theo took the uh not the snapter but the graphics from the chapter headings for 69 and wrote in there nice (laughs) which i thought was cool we had a, um, a thread out there also looking for some ideas for our 100th episode. I know we're quite a long ways away from that, but just trying to get a sense of what people are interested in. It seems like a lot of people are pushing for us to do like a Facebook Live event. So we'll have to, we'll have to figure that out. But any other ideas people want to put out there, we'll make sure we can talk about that. And... We just want to express how much fun we're having with the group and and the group page overall. It's been uh, quite a blast. I'm reading some interactions now about uh, about why rogues are good at handling daggers and <laughs> some clever stuff. You're missing out if you're we not have, on yeah. this group page. It's hilarious. We have some clever listeners, yeah. Oh, I did this week accidentally pimp out the Facebook group page. <laughs> To the Facebook group page. To the Facebook group page. And they're like, man, you've already got us. <laughs> like, like <laughs> we're we're here, buddy. Like yeah. <laughs> It was like it was like ten thirty at night. I'd only had like three hours of sleep the night before. I'm just going through the motions, people. Like, <laughs> mistakes will be made, all right. So uh let's talk about some predictions. Yes, I cannot wait for this. Oh, my predictions are a tangled mess. I think in this set of predictions, I have actually managed to put contradicting predictions. 
awesome. I, I'm not. I'm not even. Sh- I've made so many the thread predictions. Balls become a yarn ball. Oh my lord! I've made so many predictions. I can't even keep up with the predictions that I've made. So, I mean, my first one that I wrote down was Shalon visited Shadesmar when she soul cast. I think that's confirmed. I think I think that's confirmed in the episode. I mean, if you take the chapter title as a confirmation. I think first ever in episode confirmed theory. <laughs> Only because I was too dumb to realize it was already a known fact. Uh, no, I would not call have called that a known fact. I mean, why would you have guessed that by that chapter title? Oh, I guess that's a good point. Yeah. You wouldn't have known that. I guess that's a good point. All right. So I said this earlier. Uh, Seth is going to lose his mind, but I think Seth becomes a villain. Is he not a villain already? I mean, up until that the interlude i did not take him as a villain okay he he very much was uh, played up to this point as a victim mm-hmm. it wasn't until he killed the king of yakaved that i'm like all right now he's turned i think seth and kaladin are going to end up fighting each other probably in book 5 in book 5 that's my prediction okay in 2021 <laughs> Actually, it won't even. It'll be way past that before we ever find that out. So, the desolations I think are tied to the shard blades, and the curse. When Seth, when Seth talks about it being a cursed blade, is that as long as the shard blades exist, the desolations will not stop. Hmm. I think Kaladin is Kalak reborn. I think uh, Stormfather is Jezarian. Yeah, thank you. Reborn. And I think Seth is Talon reborn. Talonel or however you say that. Yeah, Talon. Talon, yeah, reborn. So I think think those two are heralds reborn. I think that the light eyes that we have today are just the assholes from Feverstone Keep who fought the dirtiest and ended up with shard blades at the end of it. I think that's where all these powerful families came from. They're all phrase. They're all fucking phrase, every oh, one of them. They're all phrase. Erythru is the tower itself. The tower, the the plateau? Yes. I don't know how, for it's underneath of it. Sort of similar to what I said last time, how Mm -hmm. I thought it was underneath of the Shattered Plains. Mm -hmm. But when I read the description for chapter 53, where it says he must pick it up, the fallen title, the tower, Mm -hmm. the crown, and the spear... I was like, oh, the oh, okay, Erythru is the tower. I'm convinced that I'm convinced that Erythru is in the shattered plains. Mm-hmm. Now I think it's somehow in the tower, especially mm-hmm. since we've we know that there is light that comes from it. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's where Erythru is. And I think Kaladin has to go there to be able to realize his legacy. 
I somehow feel like this escape that they're going to pose is going to lead to them going to the tower. Now, you wouldn't do that on purpose because that would be walking into the teeth of the enemy. So I recognize that. But I somehow feel like this is going to end up leading to them to bridge four going to the tower. All right. The recreance was the moment that the shard blades became cursed, or at least the moment that the radiance became aware that they were cursed. So I think they walked away from them there because they realized that the blades themselves had become a curse. Hmm. So those are my predictions. Those are awesome predictions. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you very much. You can find us at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. That's our website. Come check us out there. That's where we host all of our episodes. We do once every seven or eight months, put an article up there, <laughs> a little blog post. Uh, but generally that's where we put our episodes up and that's where the feed is posted. If you want to interact with us, the best way to interact with us is on the Facebook group page at Facebook talk, Facebook.com backslash groups backslash the D&D group. You can also find us on Twitter at the D&D podcast and on Instagram at the Duke and Duchess podcast. And those are all of our social media ways that you can get a hold of us. If you have questions or you need advice, if you're not sure what to do with a forlorn lover, you don't know where to hide your family jewels so that no one will be able to uncover them. If you need to figure out a place to bury your sister's haunted doll heads, ask the Duchess by emailing advice at the Duke and Duchess podcast dot com. Do you have anything else? No, I do not. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>